Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Arsenal Supporters Trust podcast. Here we have a special podcast for you and it is an audio recording of a live event we did with former Arsenal director David Dean only a few days ago. David spoke all about his history with Arsenal, the highs and the lows, what he's been up to since, the time at the FA, the twinning project that he's heavily involved in and there was a special message for Arsene Wenger too so take a listen enjoy and up the Arsenal Welcome everybody to the Arsenal Supporters Trust meeting we don't meet so often um, anymore in person in the rooms using more on Zoom so it's wonderful to see so many people here, and I'm so pleased we have a guest who, he'll know, we've been nagging away for years to come and, and talk to you all, because he really is um, so intertwined with Arsenal's history and Arsenal's success, and, and we will have an evening learning more about that from David. But first of all, I'd just like to hand over to Nigel Phillips, who'd like to say a few words about an AST member who sadly can't be with us anymore, but I think everyone would want to acknowledge at this meeting. So, Nigel... Thanks, Tim. Welcome, David. Pleased, pleased to see you. Thank you very much. We haven't had a number like this together for a long time. I don't know if everyone's so keen to be out in person or whether you're the pool, David, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll put it down to the latter. Now, as Tim says, it's our first face-to-face meeting since Maria Petri sat and passed during the summer. She was a tremendous supporter of the club, all aspects of the club, founder member of the Supporters' Trust. Her share in Arsenal was facilitated by by myself, by the Supporters Trust, when she thought that was one piece of Arsenal memorabilia and connection she didn't have. She was clearly a very, very passionate supporter across the club in all ways, and notably with, with the ladies as it was, and now the women's, which David clearly was a, was a founder supporter of with, with Miss Rakers as well. So, um, just to, I know there's been plenty about Maria in the, in the club and, um, and commemorations and everything, but we didn't think we could let tonight pass without just saying thank you to Maria. Yoko is here, who's been a great friend to, um, uh, to Maria all, all the years. She will be missed, and um, God rest Maria, thank you. Thank, thank you, Nigel. Uh, if anybody at the back at any point is struggling to hear any of us, just put your hand up and we'll go closer to the microphones and, and make sure it works. But I think it's a, it's a fairly good system if we remember to talk into the microphone. So I'm delighted to welcome David. And it's even better to have you back here when Arsenal are top of the league, because we tend to think that that was your contribution to our club, having Arsenal top of the league. For, when I was reading the book, it was very interesting to think that the man that in many ways is doing the role that you used to do is Edu. And Edu, I think, was a David Dean signing. Could you perhaps start off by telling us your reflections of Edu? And be honest, did you think one day he would be sort of doing your role? Well, that's a very good question. So firstly, good evening, everybody. And it's a great... I hope you can all hear me at the back, can you? Yes, can, we, can you hear me okay? Great. And if you don't mind, uh, my PA, Natalie, do you mind bringing my briefcase? I think I've got some... Uh, or did you... Because um, I may have a few props you may like to see in this, by the way. Okay. 
One of them is not Lionel Messi, I'm afraid. So, um, yes, so I, 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 let me just preface, uh, I, I will answer your question, don't marry Tim, but um, I've always had a very, very warm relationship with, with you guys, particularly with the Arsenal Supporters Trust, and in particular with Tim and Nigel. We used to have regular meetings, probably twice, three times a year, always at the Walsley, you may remember. So after about 3,000 cups of tea and about 450 scones, we're still together, isn't that right? So back to uh, Edu, yes. Uh, that was, uh, he, he was an unusual transfer because I remember when we signed him and it took some time to, to get him from Corinthians in Brazil. And when we brought him over, he was due to come over, I received a call at 3 a.m. from the immigration officer at Terminal 3 to say, Mr. Dean, we've got one of your players here. I said, oh, really? I said, what's the problem? He said, well, his passport is not really good. <laughs> I said, oh, gosh. Uh, he said, we're going to have to send him back home. I said, well, hold on a minute. Um, can you tell me exactly where you are now? So, immediately scooted up to Terminal 3 and I uh, spoke to the immigration officer and he said, I'm afraid he's got a false passport. Uh, he said, it's um, actually the passport itself, the document's okay, it's just that it's out, that the, the number on it is out of sequence. And this is going on a lot at the moment, we're finding particularly the players from South America. So I'm afraid until he gets a proper passport, he won't get out in. So that was my first introduction to Edu. <laughs> and uh, I said to, I uh, spoke to Arsene, he was held overnight, and obviously I spoke to Arsene straight away, and I said to Arsene, what do you want to do? Um, you know, because it could take at least six to nine months. He was entitled to a passport, because I think actually he had, was either Italian or Portuguese ancestors. So he was actually entitled to it, but just that the agent tried to pull him fast track to get him in quickly which often happens, as you know, with football agents, we can talk about them later. So, um, anyway, Arsene said, no, we'll definitely sign him. So I said to Eddie at the time, you don't have to worry about it, don't worry, go back, we'll get your papers in order, you'll be welcome whenever, whenever you come in. So don't, don't worry, don't think that we won't be signing, we will. And of course, about six months later, he finally arrived. So the answer to your question, did I ever think that he would become sporting director? Not at that time. <laughs> Not at that time at four o'clock in the morning at Terminal 3. <laughs> He's doing quite a good job now, though. Yeah, he had a great job. It's good to see him. So obviously, it's taken time for him to settle down and get to understand, but we're getting there. What, what do you think he needs to bring to the role. What do you see in him that he can bring to the role? But also, what does a sporting director at a club like Arsenal need to do to get the club to the top and then keep them there? Yeah, uh, that's a lot to that question. So the first thing is Arsenal is a special club because it's got, it carries a lot of weight because of its stature, its history. So, and, and the fans, everybody, they, they demand success. Not only that, obviously, since Arsenal's been there particularly, a certain style of play that we like to play attractive football, and Arsenal always had 
this wonderful saying, he wants, he wants possession with progression. He, he's a football purist, he loves the passing game. So I think Edward understands that. And of course, so has Mikel, because he was obviously with, working with Pep and with Arsene. He's got that same philosophy, which is great for the club, because you are seeing, particularly now, seeing some very pretty football going on at the moment. I want to move us away from Arsenal specifically for a little while, and then perhaps come back to the second half to do more talking about Arsenal. But I always think it's good to be particularly topical and linked to what we see in the game today, and then apply it to looking forward. And if there's a story of this weekend, it's maybe the story of every weekend, but it's VAR and refereeing. You know, our game started 45 minutes late waiting for VAR, which then had quite a big influence on the game. At Liverpool, we've seen the issue with Klopp and him being charged and the pressure on the referees. So giving you the chance to open up with perhaps a few answers here, David, because you have been so integral to innovation in refereeing, and I think you've got some strong views on how it can be even better and what we should do yeah. going forward. So over to you, kind of referees, VAR, what next, what works, what doesn't work? Okay, so let's talk about uh, the weekend. And you can't blame VAR for a power cut, number one. You can blame VAR for a lot of things, but I don't think you can blame it for a power cut. You know, that happens. I'm, I remember being at, I think it was Selhurst Park when Arsenal were playing Wimbledon, you may remember. And at half time, the lights went out and didn't come on again, and the game had to be abandoned. And then eventually the police got called in, and it was a betting syndicate somewhere who wanted the result to be, but they had to kick off the second half. And then as soon as we kicked off, the lights went out, if I'm not mistaken. And, that, and the, so the result actually stood in the books for the time being, for that time, moment in time. So I don't think you can blame the VAR for a lot of things, but I'm a great proponent of VAR, I believe in it. Um, before, obviously, it got really introduced to the World Cup in, uh, in Russia in 2018. I've been following it before that for four or five years before it finally got introduced. And I always tell every time I do a talk, and we're talking about yeah, technology coming into the game, and VA in particular, uh, the statistic I always use is the following. Before VAR, the referees were making one game-changing error every three games. It is now reduced dramatically. People can't realise what it was like before VAR the problems that the referees had. And if you ask any of the referees today, we've got 18 elite referees in the Premier League, you ask them, are they in favour of VAR? Each and every one will put their hand up and say, yes, we are. Because they were making mistakes one after the other. And now it's being, and it, it's being curtailed. You're not seeing so many errors being made. Where is it going from here? It's a very good question. It is being looked at. Don't forget, people forget it's in its infancy. It's really been only, it came, its moment in time was really in the World Cup in Russia. So it's only been four years it's been introduced on a big stage. Now it's going to get better and better. The VARs themselves are getting more experience. And as time goes on, you will see it will get more efficient. The next steps for VAR will be twofold. One which must happen, in my opinion, which I'm very much promoting, is communication between the referee, and it has to be the referee, not the VAR himself. It's got to be the referee, he's the boss man on the field. It's got to be the VAR actually broadcasting on the pitch to the fans, telling what the incident was. It was a penalty, it was a handball, it was a red card, and why. So, as it happened in American football, you see the referee put on his mic and he'll say, 10-yard penalty, holding, whatever it may be, with a, with a player's number. So that will happen, that's the first thing. The second thing, the most contentious element, probably in VR, is always offside. 
that will be dramatically improved next year with what they call automatic offside. And that will be, and it's all about technology coming in. So, Tim, the answer to your question is, give VAR more of a chance. It's still very much in its infancy, and you will see it getting better and better as time goes on. But try and remember what life was like before VAR. And it's all about getting accuracy. So, I'm sorry that's a long-winded answer, but that's where we are. But one of the things that we campaigned on as AST to the FA and other authorities is exactly what you talked about, which is people will like VAR, not like VAR, but surely if you have it, those of us particularly in the stadium deserve to know what's going on in real time. That's a huge kind of improvement. Why should we pay all this money for tickets and, and sit there sucking lemons for a couple of minutes trying to guess what's happening? And I'm encouraged by your answer because you know a fairly important man at FIFA. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and he agrees with me on both of those points, by the way. Um, incidentally, here's a question for you, Tim. There are two clubs in the Premier League that don't have big screens. Do you know that? Absolutely. Arguably the two richest clubs. Now, they have to have them eventually, and they've got to bring them in because it's part of the experience. I don't know if you've got VAR, the fans want to know what's going on. So, you know, and... Uh, I believe it should be a Premier League ruling that every club when they come in the Premier League must have giant screens. Don't forget, we were one of the first, I remember, bringing them in the Jumbotron, the Mitsubishi Jumbotron screens, right, in the early 90s when, when we had them. We were probably the first club, actually, to introduce big screens. Now, seeing that we're doing Q&As about refereeing, how much extra time was there at the Arsenal game on Sunday? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot. <laughs> You've read my book. You read my book. Okay, here's a question for the audience. How long do you think the ball is in play for during a 90-minute game? Uh, don't shout. Put your hands up. Give me, a, give me an answer. 75 minutes. 75 minutes. 60. 45. 45. We've got 45, 75. 50. 50. 50. So isn't it amazing? Go on. 59. 59. 57. 57. So the answer is, in Western Europe, between 58 and 60 minutes. That's how long the ball is actually in play during a 90-minute game. Now, if you, I don't know how many have read the book, but even if you, if you haven't and you've managed to buy one, they're on sale outside. <laughs> All profits, incidentally, I've got to give you the whole commercial thing here. All profits go to the 20 Project Charity, so buy as many as you can. So there will be my idea, which hasn't yet gone through yet with IFAB, that's International Football Association Board, is rather like in basketball, where there will be a clock yeah. with two halves yeah, yeah, yeah. of 30 minutes. So every time the ball goes out of play, the clock stops. So it stops all this nonsense when a player is being substituted and his team are winning so that he, he takes his time coming off the pitch or when there's a penalty and the goalkeeper goes over to the post and kicks the post to get mud off his shoe, boots or whatever. You know, all that nonsense. So the time wasting. So we've got actual pure time. Because if you ask any referee, this is where my campaign really started. I go probably once or twice a year to St George's Park. For those of you who don't know, St George's Park is the England Centre of Excellence in Burke-upon-Trent. And that's where the England team, men and women, go to train before an important match. And the referees go there every fortnight. They get tested on their fitness, they get tested on the laws of the game. There'll be a senior referee going through their previous games during the fortnight. And when I was there, it must have been a couple of years ago, I said to our, the referees, the 18 referees that were there and their assistants, 
I said, tell me, you know, when the fourth official puts up three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, how accurate are you? To a man privately, they all use the same word. Guesswork. Guesswork. I said, well, hold on, America put a man in the moon in 1969. And here we are in 2022, and it's still guesswork. Mo Salah scored a goal last year against us. You may remember, from start, I think there was a four-man move, from start to finish, do you know how long that move took? 10.8 seconds. Now, can a referee ever be accurate to 10.8 seconds? Of course he can't. So with everything else going on in, in, in the game, don't you think timing is important? So I'm on that campaign, right, really, very, very forcibly. I want to see it come in. IFAB at the moment, I'm not yet, haven't got behind it, but I think there's going to be enough of a tailwind, certainly the English FA, by the way, in favour of it. So I think eventually you'll see, well, I'm certainly trying to get that pushed through for pure, what we call pure time. So just for me to clarify, on the big screen, it would start with 30 minutes, and then it would tick down with someone controlling when the ball was in play, and then yeah. the final whistle goes exactly as the 30 minutes are up. That's quite a, quite a big change to yeah, our psyche, is. even if it delivers a similar amount of playing time. Well, there is a halfway house, which I think fudges it, and that is giving the, taking the timekeeping away from the referee. At the moment, the official timekeeper is the referee, and he will, <coughs> by and large, decide how much, how many minutes it should be extra. He will probably confer with the fourth official. But does if you can have another person just keeping the time, let everybody know what the time <laughs> is. Let the fans be involved. It's crazy. No. So, <laughs> so if you want to get that, write to IFAB. I'll give you the address at FIFA. <laughs> Try and get behind the campaign. So if we wait till the end of the evening, we'll have a letter, yes, a, few, a, few, a few points. A few points yeah, to make. You've done a few of those crusades, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> and we'll come, we'll come on to one or, one or two of the very important ones that have occurred recently. But you gave me a nice introduction there to um, the twinning project. Um, and you very kindly invited myself and Nigel along to a visit you did in Pentonville, which is in many ways Arsenal's local prison. And it was... And by the way, they did let me out. <laughs> <laughs> and it, was, it was an eye-opening experience. And, and, but would you just like to explain to people for a couple of minutes why you put so much time into working with the prisons and what the twinning project is about and how Arsenal and other football clubs have supported? Yeah. Thank you, Tim, for opening that up. Um, well, it really started when I left Arsenal. I had some time on my hands, and I was approached by some, some a guy who may you've heard of called Robert Peston. He is currently the, the he was at the time the BBC business correspondent. He's now the ITV business correspondent. He's an Arsenal fan, and he, uh, we had lunch. He said, "Let me take you to lunch." I think I wait. I ended up paying for it, but then, <laughs> we, had, we had a nice lunch. And he said, I'm starting a charity. I said, what is it? He said, speakers for schools. I said, what is it? He said, well, because I've known so many successful people in my way of life, my, my job, um, I'd like to put some of them into schools so they can show youngsters when they're coming to making a decision on their careers, they can perhaps be influenced. Would you like to do it? I said, cool, count me in. I'm happy to do it. He said, only expect one or two a year from you, David. So, um, in the last six years, I think I've done 660 <laughs> schools. In fact, this afternoon, I was at Bishop Stortford High School uh, giving a talk to the students, and I really enjoyed it. So, from that, and I always get my best ideas shaving, shaving one morning, 
and I'm looking at the mirror and I'm thinking, I'm quite enjoying this experience going around schools giving talks. Where else is there a captive audience? <laughs> and the word captive stuck in my mind. I said, prisoners. I bet the prisoners are bored out of their skulls. They've got nothing to do. I can come in. I'm not quite Michael McIntyre, but maybe I can, you know, raise their spirit for an hour or so and see how it goes. I've actually been to all 117 prisons now in England and Wales. I've been to every single prison, men, women's, and young offenders' prison. And as I'm going around, I'm doing my market research. I'm thinking, what rehabilitation is going on here? Precious little. And what is football doing? Everybody I speak to, I'm literally having a captive audience, but the, the people that I'm talking to, the offenders, are so interested in my presentation. So I thought about this. What about officially twinning a football club with its local prison? So Arsenal, actually Arsenal, one of the few were doing some work in Pentamil, not actually football coaching, but more lifestyle. And I thought, well, what about having a proper football course? So I knocked on the door of the FA, always had to go to the FA first, quite apart from the fact that I used to be vice chairman there, so I had a direct link. So I said, look, I want to go into it, but I won't do it without your blessing. I want to get, if I'm going to go into prisons, can I have the FA's endorsement? And they said, yes. We like the idea, do it. And I went to the Premier League, the Football League, the PFA and all the refs and everybody else. And I got, from the whole football family, I got endorsed that we could start coaching. Then I went to, at the time, it was Rory Stewart, who was the Minister for Prisons. And I said, look, we want to, I think we're bringing football in. He said, what do you want me to do? And I said, I want you to deliver me the prisons, I'll deliver football. But that's going to be the partnership. Because if I'm going to send Arsenal coaches into Pentonville, I want them to be, make sure they're safe and they're going to be looked after and they'll be responsibly treated. And if I've got 12 or 14 or 16 people on a course, I want 16 people to show up. I don't want 10 one day, 12 the next. So that's the deal, you'll do it. As we speak today, there are 73 professional football clubs twinned with a local prison. And we're now starting to see results where the offenders are getting jobs, which is what it's all about really at the end of it. And it's been very successful. And it's going to expand now, believe it or not, overseas. We've had interest now from the States, from Sweden, Japan. So everybody's getting the idea that football and sport in particular can help offenders to get them on the right track. So really that's all about, that's what the 20 Project is. It really is a very powerful and inspiring project. I don't think I'm giving any secrets away from the book that I haven't perhaps seen the, the, the link in your mind that, of course, players like Ian Wright and Tony Adams have had issues with prison. And what I think comes through from knowing you, but also in the book, is you do have a big feeling of giving people a second chance. Yeah. And football works on that. But perhaps you can move that on a little bit to people like Tony Adams and Ian Wright and other players and the backgrounds they come from and what football offers them beyond what we see, which is the bit on the pitch and the, and the, and the winning the trophies. Well, that's so true. In fact, Ian is one of our trustees. Um, I'm pleased to say when we started up the 20 Project Charity, he put his name down straight away because he knew what it was like to be inside. And actually that was a, a, a life changer for him, the fact that when he came out, he realised that he had to do other things and be a different person. And it's an eye-opener. I've met so many interesting people in prison. Uh, yes, they're all gone there. And they're all guilty, by the way. I'm not defending any of them, right? They're, all, they're there for a good reason. You know, a judge or a magistrate does not send somebody to prison unless they're guilty, that's for sure. Uh, but 
you've got to believe, if we're responsible citizens, that people do deserve a second chance. Because as we're walking home tonight, there will be people in Holloway Road who have actually been to prison. So that people aren't been to prison, but they're joining us in society. They're going to join us in society. Let's make them a better person. <laughs> so that they don't reoffend. Because it's costing you and me £48,000 per person to keep somebody in prison. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, well said, David. Now, on the, maybe move on, on the subject of being forgiving and always giving people a second chance, you're so forgiving that you even appear to be friendly with Jose Mourinho. <laughs> <laughs> What's he like? Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, are you talking about the Chelsea tapping up? Are you here? Yeah. Well, more generally, I mean, there was there was a period where he was perhaps public enemy number one for yeah. Arsenal fans and, and ourselves. But you're quite generous towards him. Yes, probably because I've seen him socially, and actually, he's a different person to what he's like on on the pitch, and uh, you know what he's managing. Uh, soon after, must have been about six months or so after the Chelsea tapping up, and obviously Chelsea were caught red-handed with tapping up Ashley Cole. I happened to be at the African Cup of Nations in Ghana, and as I was sitting after dinner, I was sitting at a table, and um, and I, at the corner of my eye, I saw somebody coming in at the reception. Who was it? Jose Mourinho. And I said, um, and as he came over to me, he gave me a big hug. He really gave me a big hug. Here we were, out of our comfort zone. We're in West Africa, and I'm meeting Jose Mourinho. And the last time I saw him, actually, was at the tribunal. And we and we, we, we spoke to each other a couple of hours that evening, to the early hours of the morning. And he's a different guy when you've got him in a social surrounding. And I think a lot of it's bravado. It's for the press. I remember his first press conference in, in England when he came over, and obviously, obviously he'd been very successful in, in Portugal, in Porto. And I think one of the press said, Mr. Mr. Mourinho, you've got a big reputation. People think you're an egotist. So he looked blank and he, blank and he said, um, I don't know what that means, but whatever it means, I'm the best at it. <laughs> <laughs> but because he plays to the press, you know. Uh, so, uh, and also he's a bit unkind, what he said to Arsene, you may remember. That time, which was unfortunate. What, what behind the scenes in football at the top level is it all friendliness? How much are the elbows out? I mean, I remember Ferguson always used to say, "Oh, bloody David Dean, he runs the FA, he's stitching everything up." But were you were you pals with Fergie behind the scenes? Were you always trying to stay one step ahead of him? And, and, and with other clubs and teams, I'm sure you shake hands at the end of the game. But are you try to pull a fast one, or is it all the family behind the scenes? Okay. <laughs> well, we want to win. I mean, that's number one. But we want to win fairly, and, and if we can, we want to win in style. And I'm not the type of guy that goes around looking for confrontation. I like to do things properly if I can. Um, and um, and there was a friendly rivalry. Let me just tell you this little story with, with Alex Ferguson. Um, it must have been about six or nine months ago. I attended a, a ceremony, it was a memorial ceremony for one of the Manchester United directors, a very nice guy with that lawyer, a guy called Maurice Watkins. And it was in Manchester. And as I came out of the church hall, I happened to be standing right next to Sir Alex. And he turned around to me, he said, David, the first thing he said, how's Arsene? I said, he's fine, thank you, Alex. He said, will you give him my best regards? And he genuinely meant it. 
So there was mutual respect between the two of them. Of course there was rivalry, there has to be. Arsene's a sore loser and so is Sir Alex. But you'd want that, you know, but you expect that. But there has to be some decorum between them. Certainly Sir Alex, I mean, I always got on very well with them, and indeed with all the other uh, other directors. And this was Even campaigns? Uh, he was special. <laughs> yeah, there was a little bit of uh, friction there from time to time, but uh, it got on well. I think I said so in the book that uh, I, people think that we used to argue all the time. I said it's not true. I said only I only ever had one argument with Ken Bates, but it lasted for twelve years. <laughs> but, but now I got on well. In fact, deep down, we would have a, a, a during Premier League meeting. We could be at odds with each other, but afterwards we'd always have a cup of tea together. And that's how it has to be. And that leads me on to perhaps how football is run now. You mentioned in the book somebody called Nick Coward. You mentioned him in reference to the famous issue with Sheffield United. But, you know, we worked with Nick as well, and we were talking about the problem of the Premier League and the Super League and where the game's going. And he said something I thought was very interesting. I welcome your view, and perhaps takes us on to Arsenal's ownership. She says, how much harder it is to run English football when the people that own the clubs are no longer in the Premier League meeting. You've lost that sense of, you know, you said David Dean and Ken Bates were always arguing in Premier League meetings, but when they went outside, they were kind of representing the football family and they believed in the pyramid That's true. and issues like that. Um, what's your observation on the Premier League at the moment? And perhaps lead that into what happened, you know, just over 18 months ago when they tried to, some of the clubs tried to break it up. Yeah. Well, certainly, uh, when we started the Premier League, there was a very special camaraderie. Virtually every person around the room was an owner of the club. Today, it's their man on earth. They're not there anymore. So you may have the financial controller, you may have the CEO. You probably do not have, apart from two or three clubs, you have the owner. So the dynamics have changed dramatically. So let's move on, if you like, to what happened just over a year ago with the Super League. I remember I was asked a couple of days after it got announced, uh, I went on Football Focus and I always, I, I, I don't want to be Mr. Dyla quote, so I'm very careful of what programmes or who I speak to. And Football Focus rang me up and said, would I mind coming on the programme? I thought the, 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 the subject was so important that I had to say something. And I was asked the question, really two questions. The first one was, what did I think of the Super League? I used the word, word abhorrent. I felt it was undignified, I thought that it was elitist, and I thought that because there was no promotion and relegation, there were hand-picked clubs, just as the name had to be, Barcelona or Real Madrid or Manchester United, they could get catapulted into a sterile league without promotion or relegation, not based on merit, had to be consigned to the waste paper basket. And I made my my point very clear, and I started loving it. I know you did, Tim and Nigel and everybody. Right, the fans found their voice, and good luck to Gary Neville because he was one of the early ones to come out against it. And um, it was important. And some of the players came out, and some of the managers came out against it. But it hasn't gone away. Be careful, because there is still an action going on with three of the clubs uh, who have not yet signed up to a pact with UEFA. So that case is still being heard will be heard in the next couple of months. I think December is due to be heard. And that would be really serious if the clubs win, because that would be, that would probably be, it would make the Premier League a second tier league. It would probably have to be a midweek league, which is a nonsense. It would kill off the Champions League for sure. 
The Champions League is the Super League. If you finish after 38 games, you finish in the top four, you get elevated into the Champions League. Well, that's the, that's, that's, that is the Super League. That's even more concerning than that, David, in that they may not be active partners, but Arsenal are legal signatories to that action against UEFA. Because yeah. Arsenal are still <laughs> legal members of the European Super League. Uh, yeah, they did pull out, in fairness to them. But haven't pulled they, out legally. Well, that's another story. But uh, uh, I, I don't think the English clubs are going to find it very difficult now to get back in. I think they've had their fingers burned from it and they're still smarting from it. And good luck by the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. He came out with, at the time, and he was well advised, he used two important words. He said, if this happens, I will drop a legislative bomb on it, which was brave of him to say. Yeah, that was, and I think that scared the clubs straight, uh, straight away. That was incredibly powerful. We were but fortunate. What is the game without the fans? I mean, how can, there was no consultation. It, it wasn't, it, there, and who spoke up for the Super League afterwards when it got announced? Nobody. Everybody ran for cover. So where does the game go next? You know, we, we put detailed submission into the Tracy Crouch review, in, call for in some way to have some better independent regulation, strengthen the voice of the fans, in some way find a way of stopping club claim home games overseas, joining Super Leagues, not listening to us, the supporters, anymore. Yeah, well, I was never in favour of the 39th game playing another game overseas because, once again, it takes the game away from the fans. So fans could see 38 games, but the 39th game they can't see. Oh, come on. It, it, it doesn't make sense. Just for, just for more revenue? Um, I, I don't believe in that. So I was never in favour of the, uh, the, the 39th game. Uh, likewise, I'm, I'm not in favour of anything to do with where fans have got to be given the opportunity to support their team home and away, whatever happens. And the minute you start taking the game away from the fans, we're asking for trouble. And this is what the owners have to understand. Because you know, there's only two or three now English owners, the others right from over, they've got, the, they've got a different way of life. In America, they've got a sterile league. You know, they have a draft system on who gets transferred. It's a different world. On the subject of taking the game away from fans or decisions you thought you'd never see, in a month's time, I assume you're going to Qatar. I am indeed, yes. Looking forward to that. I'll be there from the 12th of November for the duration. With another man that we know well, we usually go to all the games together. Yes, yeah. We'd certainly be there together. How, how would you feel at that World Cup as the chair of the England bid? Which I think, was it one vote or two votes? Because Jeff Thompson did go through the right voting lobby. Tim, we, we got two votes, and it probably was one of the most disappointing episodes of my life. I spent the best part of a year and a half going around trying to win the bid for England for 2018, and in the end, we only got two votes, one of which was our own. My, my eldest son, with a wicked sense of humour, he said, yes, and the other guy, I ticked the wrong box. But, no, how do I feel now? It's 12 years ago, the game's moved on, it's going to happen. We're 34 days away. So, you know, whatever you, you want to say now, whatever you said 12 years ago, not 34 days before kickoff. That's true, it's happening. Do you think we'll see English success? I think we've got a decent amount. What do you call success? You get to call you the final, semi-finals, final. Well, the true success is winning it. 
I happened to be at Wembley in 1966, and I know how proud I felt driving, and this is mentioned in one of the chapters, driving from Wembley that famous day in 66, going to France with a very flashy E-type Jaguar, with the old Union Jack hanging out both windows, and people were yelling, as I'm going through France, Bobby Charlton, Nobby Styles, going like this, and I have, right, it's a wonderful feeling. How did we feel when the women won the Euros? Right, it was magnificent. Yeah, so it means a lot to the country. As it I think Gareth Southgate's got a decent squad together. If who knows how far they can go, we hope for the best. And what do you think is coming next from FIFA? I mean, last year we saw, in many ways, the front man was Arsene Wenger for a proposal of a World Cup every two years. We hear talk about a World Club Championship coming. In fact, you know, any idea in Fantino to make? more money, the players seem to be a breaking point in the number of games. What, what's your crystal ball of the next few years for football? Uh, I, I don't know if any of you were at the Palladium. I did an event just over a year ago at the Palladium with Arsene, and we were talking, we were asked that question about a two-year World Cup. And I'm always looking for compromise because he came up with a two-year World Cup. Currently, there's a four-year World Cup every four years. So I went for middle ground and said, well, what about a three-year World Cup where you have the World Cup, the Men's World Cup for in year one. Year two, you're going to have the Women's World Cup. In year three, you're going to have the Euros or the equivalent around the world, whatever the Euros is around the world. So in any order you like, but that should be the rotation every three years, which gives a player more opportunities to get to a World Cup. And I think this will be the next thing which FIFA will probably come back up with. But it was vetoed really by UEFA who killed it off which was unfortunate. It needs a lot more thought. It really was a bit too adventurous at the time when it was, when it was promoted. Um, and Arsene did front in, I agree. And I think they're now back to the drawing board. And I think the next step should be a World Cup every three years. Certainly that's what I, I've studied the calendar. I think that would be possible. And also, you're right, there will probably be a Club World Cup where the best, rather like you've got the Champions League, but you'll get the best teams around the world playing in another competition. Um, that will probably happen, and that will also kill off any ideas of a Super League, by the way, if that gets introduced. So I think that's important. Mm. You mentioned there um, Arsene Wenger, obviously your, your best friend and so important to everybody here. The last couple of times we've seen him, it hasn't been at the Emirates, it's been at the Palladium or with yourself. And Akil, you were, you were talking to Henry Winter about this, who helped you with the book and wrote an article on it last week. So maybe Akil, you pick up a bit and then we'll go back to David. Yeah, I, mean, I, I spoke to Henry uh, sort of a couple of days ago. Um, he was sort of writing a piece on, on, on Arsene Wenger. And of course, he was at the Palladium, he hosted um, along with Amy Lawrence. So he must have had a chat with Arsene Wenger about this. And, kind of asked what the fan feeling was. And I think, you know, doing a little bit of research, talking to a few people, I think it, it was, I think people agreed with Arsenal's decision to maybe step away a little bit, not be that sort of Sir Alex Ferguson type figure, you know, when the cameras pan to him every time David Moyes loses, things like that. But it happened a lot. But things have moved on now. You know, Arsenal have moved on now. Um, I mean, if you look at sort of who's running the club, Arsene Wenger's former captain. Uh, Arsene Wenger got Per Mertesacker as well. Uh, they do. So do you think now is the time for Arsene to come back and do you think he will come back to watch ahead? It's a sensitive question. A sensitive question. Uh, rather like myself, he is bruised. I don't think he was treated well. 
and I said in the book, and I think I was treated well. And um, I think he's still smarting from that. Uh, his life has moved on. He's now head of global football development for FIFA, which in a way I felt sorry that Arsenal didn't embrace him. I've said this publicly many times, that he's not good enough for Arsenal, but he's good enough to be head of global football for the world because he's so knowledgeable and so responsible. I mean, today he's actually addressing French, the French parliament about Qatar, about Qatar and their attitude. Um, what he's doing, he's taking his training methods around the world now, his coaching methods. And I thought that he's such a good brain that he had to be somewhere harnessed within, within Arsenal Football Club after spending 22 years. I do hope that he does come back to, um, because as you probably know, it's no secret, there is a, a statue waiting for him to be unveiled. I hope he does decide to do that, because from what he delivered to the club, he certainly deserves it. And I hope he, at the moment, he was in two minds. He hasn't agreed to do it yet. I'm certainly pushing him to try and encourage him that he should come over, because he, it ought to be there. It, it's got to be a permanent memory to what he delivered to the club. Mm. And you mentioned yourself there as well. See, you, you I'm not asking for a statue, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you said yourself that you were obviously sort of uh, bruised as well. Um, did you sort of leave it a little while before coming back? Because I mean, we we know you still go to games. We know you've got season tickets and things. Yeah. But did you did you leave? Did you have a little gap, or did you? No, I, I did. I had a gap of several months, and it was actually I remember Karen Brady's dad, who was a box holder, Terry Brady, who uh, rang me up out of the blue. He said, David. He said. You've got to come back to the club. You've given it too much. And uh, I said, it's very difficult for me. He said, I'll send a driver. You'll have a seat in my box. I want you to come back. And um, so I went that day. And I remember his box happened to be next to one of the players, Robin Van Persie. And I hadn't seen Robin Van Persie since I left. And he looked at me. He said, Mr. Dean, he gave me a big embrace. He said, what happened to you? Why did you go? And it was difficult to tell him. But, um, so that's, and now obviously I've got my club seats. And what's your sort of relationship like now with Arsenal? Uh, it's not as warm as I'd like to see it. And that's not of my doing, because I can't do any more. I've got 10 season tickets, which I give away to, um, to school teachers and to prison officers every week. I've got my full club seats and I use the, I sit in those every week which happens to be next to the director's box, which is an out-of-body experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, there you are. I heard you can't buy the Arsenal shop, is that right? Sorry? You can't buy your book in the Arsenal shop. Uh, that's true. Uh, that is true. And, Tim, I, I really don't want to stir the pot here, but I have to say I, I find it sad, really sad. I gave the club 24 years, probably the best years of my life. I think between Arsenal and myself, we delivered more success than the club has ever seen. And um, I think it's very sad. And when I, the publishers wanted to put the book in the shop and to support the book through the database, and actually got a call from the communications director, Mark Gunella, said, I'm oh, sorry, I have to tell you this, Mr. Dean, uh, but we will not be stocking the book and we were not supporting it. And I said, why? He didn't want to tell me. I said, you must tell me why not. He said, we have to protect the owners. I said, protect the owners. 
I've said everybody has to be accountable in life. And what I've said in the book, I don't believe is in any shape or form, I hope you'll read it, in any way, other, anything other than constructive and truthful. So the answer is no, they're not stocking it, and that hurts deeply. I just want to, before opening up to the floor, I think the point of Arsene Wenger coming back in the statue being really is it, there's perhaps an important message. I don't know, let's take the temperature of the room that you could take back to Arsene. Because my feeling is that perhaps if someone could convey to him that in coming back, he's not doing that for Stan Kroenke, he'd be doing that for all us Arsenal fans that would like a chance to pay. <laughs> I think maybe we have the answer there and you can, perhaps you can, you'll have plenty of time with Arsene next month. Arsene, did you hear that? <laughs> and of course, if he doesn't want to go back to the Everton, he can always come back to Holloway Road and <laughs> we would host him here. Who would like to put a question to David? Just a couple of very quick questions. One is, for any of why do we not have replacement substitute referees? They, they're twice the age of the players, they run just as far, and, and there's 120 million games, they never substituted. There may be a shortage of players, I know they may referee in different ways, but it just seems ludicrous when they're allowed six substitutes for the players, that they can't put a substitute referee in. You mean, you don't think the referees are fit enough to run for 90 minutes? No, 120 say? minutes. Well, no, but I mean, the, the game, oh, you mean it, with extra time? Yeah. And you're saying that the referee himself should be substituted? Yes. Is that what it is? Yeah, I do. I think. I think so. I mean, I haven't done the statistics. No, that's an interesting one. It just seems I, it's inexplicable. The players. That's the one question. The other question is, what it seems to be creeping into the game in the last couple of games I've seen, not just Arsenal, is that the tactical moves where players <coughs> go down injured. They're not really injured. The players then go back and get some coaching on the side of the pitch for two or three minutes, and the players, I imagine, are told to stay down for two or three minutes while the coaching goes on. And it seems to have arisen since they had hot weather breaks. They now seem to have any weather breaks, and I'm sure it is arranged, and this wastes time, and if you want to introduce coaching during the game, then do that. But not, they keep the players on the pitch, so they don't have to go off to talk to the referee, to talk to the manager and have a drink. Mm. That just adds waste time to the... Well, your, your, argument, your, your argument helps my campaign about pure time, firstly. But just coming back to the referees, a referee on the pitch, I mean, he is the boss man. He's got the temperature. He can feel the game. And he's also looking at all the players. He understands those players that may be getting, getting het up for any incidents, whether they should be calmed down. Very often he will go over to the, the coach, the manager on the touchline, and have a quiet word with them about any particular player. I think it's difficult because they've got, really, they are the boss man. You're going to take some of the authority away by substituting. I mean, at what stage do you substitute them? At 34, 40, 45 minutes, 60 minutes, 75 minutes, 90 minutes? Extra yeah. time. I, I've never heard of a, a referee yet who wants to be substituted, by the way. <laughs> 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I... I, 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 I Sorry. Uh, I think we had Mark Housey in didn't we, a couple of years ago. He said he, he kind of builds relationship with players yeah. as the game goes on and can 
control the game. Yeah, I, I think so. So I, I, it's difficult. They've <coughs> got the emotion, the temperature of the game. I think that would be difficult. About coaching from the sideline or the, the feigning injury, I think a lot of that will come out, particularly with VAR now. Players are not, they're, they're not feigning injury so much as they used to because they're being caught on camera. So I think that will, as time goes on, that will be clear. And also the referee's got the right, if he thinks a player is, is, um, is wasting time, to give him a yellow card. Steve? Yeah, first of all, thank you very much for agreeing to come along and do this, David. It's been fascinating. And whilst I don't agree with everything that you say, I'm with you on an awful lot. Good. Especially, I've been banging on about timekeeping for ages. Good. Rugby league is the sport which has a tiny fraction of the resources that football's got, and they've had an off-field timekeeper for forever. If the referee is still in control of the clock and he has clear signals, he signals time off and time on. And that would be my favourite solution. Leave the rules as they are, but with a, a time for the referee signaling time off and time on, and with the clock so everybody knows what the starting price is. It also, with the way that I sit in the stadium, uh, paying my money for my ticket, can't uh, can't know what's going on where everybody's sitting at home watching it. Can and I just want to finish by saying it's the high, I mean, it's a definition of pettiness. The club refusing to sell your book, especially given the destination of all the proceeds from it, and I feel like I'm disgusted with that. Well, thank you. And Let me just say that nobody wants the club to succeed more than I do. And in fact, if I may, I don't know whether I brought this out at the launch, but if anybody, if you haven't seen this, let me just show you. I don't know whether you can see this, but um, this is my diary. Tim, you're going to have to adjudicate it. You can see it's from 1958. And I was a teenager here. And I'll just read one entry. This is February the 1st, 1958. Arsenal 4, Manchester United 5. Woke up at 11, had breakfast. At 1, Uncle and I had lunch and went to the Arsenal. It was always the Arsenal. Greatest game I've ever seen. It was great. Arsenal were 3-0 down at half-time and then goals by Bloomfield 2 and heard one rallied them. That's a good word in those days. Rallied them to 3-3. But Manchester United went ahead 5-3 and then 10 minutes from time, Tabscott scored to make it 4-5. What a game. All the Arsenal team played well, except for Kelsey. <laughs> Poor little Jack Kelsey there. Now we're in the middle of the league. In the evening, had supper, watched telly, went to bed at 10 o'clock. <laughs> so that just shows you. So do I want the club to succeed? Of course, it's in my bones. Um, and I'm sad that they are not supporting, you know, the book, which... I just think it's petty. They've got to be bigger than that. Exactly. You know, it is the Arsenal. Come on. So, anyway, I've said my piece. Um, David, at the time that you were working in the club with Edgar and taking everything through, what other clubs and businesses outside of football inspired you with all inspired from the work that you did? Sorry, do you mind just repeating that? I'm not sure. Sure. In that period when you were pretty nasty into the club and then seeing all that success through, what other clubs surrounding Arsenal inspires you, inspired you, or you, you know, thought of doing other good things or businesses outside of football? Well, no, I, I think a, a lot of, um, well, firstly, Arsene had his own ideas on how, how the club should be run on the playing side. And I left it, and our partnership was very simple. He would identify the players he wanted to buy or, or sell. 
and I would just ex execute it, obviously with him by my side, and we used to talk all the time. Uh, other influences, certainly I got initially, uh, I got a lot of influence going to the States and seeing how they ran, how they ran their events. I mean, because they are the masters of marketing, I think, going going to uh, to America, particularly going to see initially. I spent a lot of time watching the Miami Dolphins, because my wife comes from Miami, and uh, just seeing, how, you know, how they, they operated their stadia and, the, you know, the, uh, the, the whole way of the, the event that they, they put on. And I thought we should do something similar, and that's why we introduced the big screens. And we, and obviously, when we moved Stadia, we wanted to make sure the catering and everything else was good. And incidentally, I've got a, I've got another prop here I have to show you when you talk about what influenced me. Uh, uh, some of you may have heard this story. <clears throat> so this was now 1991, when we had to go all we had to go all seater. Some of you may have seen this if you came to the uh, the event of the book launch. So we had to go to CETA and uh, we needed to uh, redevelop the North Bank. And I called the architects together and the designers and I said, look, uh, what's the green guide for toilet facilities? I was always big on making sure that the toilet facilities were adequate. And they said, well, it's 60 or 70 people per urinal. I said, that's a nonsense. I want 30, I want it being high. I want to make sure that people can get into the toilets easily and then have a cup of tea or coffee at half time. So I want 30 or 40 per urinal. They said, well, you need a lot of space. I said, I don't care, let's do it. And in the end, they did it. Well, after we put the North Bank up, then after about six months later, the architects rang me and said, we've got the architects award ceremony coming up. There's a dinner next Friday. Would you mind coming along? I said, with pleasure. So we're up for an award. Okay. Now the announcer comes up and said, and for the best toilets <laughs> in any football ground, it goes to Arsenal Football Club. And the architect said, go on, David, go and get the award. And I don't know whether you can see it. <laughs> it's a mini, mini toilet. But you've got to hear this. And this, don't forget, now this is over 30 years old, but wait for this. It's got a little lever on it. <laughs> That's great. There you go. It's a good job Spurs didn't win it. They would have fit their training cabinet. If I just expand on, on the question there, because I mean, and I don't know if you took this inspiration from anyone else or you were the pioneer, but Arsene Wenger, foreign coach coming into an English club, Sven Bogorn Eriksson, former manager coming in to manage the England team. They were both your calls, really. Yeah. What was the inspiration or the sense, I don't know, it's quite brave, or deciding to go against that view at the time, which was, well, these foreigners don't know what they're doing in English football. Yeah. Tim, it's right. And I've always been one that I'm never frightened to take a chance. I think part of my gamble, my, my background is that, um, not that so much I'm a speculator, but I will always make myself heard. I want to... I, I, if I believe in something, I'll go for it. I'll be tenacious to want to see it through. And in both cases, I always believe that you get the best man for the job, no matter what colour, no matter what religion, no matter what, uh, what, where he's from, a nationality, you get the best person for the job. And uh, it's no secret that I wanted Arsene straight after George left. I, went, I promoted him actually to the board, and he was actually staying at my house up to an embarrassing moment. Because I said to him, do you mind if I put your name forward? And he said, no, fine. He was at Monaco at the time. And I did put him forward and I got outvoted, I think, eight to, eight to one uh, that day. 
because they, the board were nervous. They wanted an English person. And then after really Bruce didn't work out, then I he went past him, took himself off to Grandpa's Eight in Japan, and um, I, I was still in touch with him, fortunately, and managed to persuade him to come back again when we knew that we were going to release uh, Bruce. Thank you. I'm sure there's lots of young people. Hi, David. I just want to ask uh, about training confidence. Um, when it got quite toxic a few years ago, towards, you know, in, um, towards the end of Arsenal um, time at Arsenal, did you ever sort of counsel them about turning this back or walking away? Because um, it, you know, obviously, um, I think, uh, as you said, I think he deserved better. And uh, it was a very nasty atmosphere towards the end. And um, did you just ever say, Enough's enough, and walk up, you know, walk away. Yeah, well, we used to, we used to talk regularly about it, and I always felt that, and I repeat, that he had a lot to contribute. Uh, he was never really given the opportunity to discuss an alternative role at the club, which I think is disappointing. Even if the board felt that he'd run out of rope being a, the, the the manager or the coach. Um, and that was a pity. I don't think that, 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 that they really gave him that opportunity properly. And I think that caused the friction. Um, and also there was interference from members of the board at the time on what he was doing. It, he had a difficult time. Well, he admitted it, by the way, at one of, one of the evenings we had. Uh, I think it was either played him, I'm not sure, or when we had the launch of the book at the Cambridge Theatre. And he said that after the first year after I left, he actually had a burnout. I mean, he was, you know, we had something very, very special going. It was pure chemistry between us. And uh, I think it was, we had unfinished business. And it was in both of our cases when I left and indeed when he left. I think it was a, a great shame for the club. When, if I can turn the question there, and it is set out in the book, but when you were marched out, he came to you and said, what should I do? And you urged him to stay because you were thinking of what was best for Arsenal. With hindsight, do you think it was a partnership that only worked as a duo and maybe it would have been better for Arsenal, better for Arsenal, if he hadn't stayed there? Tim, that's such a difficult question to, to answer. But certainly it's quite true that uh, the, the day in the afternoon that I left, 5pm on the 18th of April, I won't forget that, Harry, 2007, uh, when I left, um, that evening he came over to my house and he said, um, I want to leave. If you're not here, I don't want to be here. And I thought about it. After reflecting, I said, Arsene, you have to stay. The club needs you. And uh, he agreed to stay on. And it was also, you have to remember, we just built, we just moved into the new stadium a year earlier. And the bank had insisted he signed a new, not people, many people know this, the bank actually insisted he signed a new five-year contract because they wanted their security and knowing that Arsene was going to be the manager. So, well, over the years we've had uh, several, you know, when you, it's, it's the hardest job a board, in my opinion, have got in, is a selection of a manager. If you get it right, your life's fairly easy. If you don't, you get it wrong. And managers, so you're all aware, in the 92 professional clubs, the average length of stay of a manager in today's world is 12 months. So for Arsene to be at the club 22 years, is, you won't see that again. I can tell you that now. Uh, yes, and Bobby Robson was at one stage thought about as a manager. True.
did you have a constant list? <laughs> Almost like, you know, should a manager fall under a bus or lose six games in a row? Were you constantly updating your list? I guess I had the, because of my connections and particularly I was president of G14, which was the 18 most glamorous clubs in Europe. So I got to know a lot of the clubs and the managers, etc. So I was always, you know, checking out who was available if needed be. But certainly I think we, with Arsene, it was just a, just a, a wonderful, wonderful period we had together. And I'll never forget that as long as I live. And I'm sure if, uh, if he were here today, he would, he would tell you that it wasn't like work. We just got on famously because we knew each other. Don't forget, we'd had a relationship. We'd known each other for seven or eight years before I actually became manager. It was a social relationship. It's unusual. Um, David, just to say thank you again for coming. And there are hundreds of questions that it would be wonderful to ask you. And to find one that actually narrows it down that only you can answer. Uh, which is really your decision to sell to a foreigner all your shares. And that foreigner, as time has now proved, was perhaps not the most savoury person to bring into Arsenal. Indeed, as those who don't know, as I'm sure all of us do, he's been sanctioned as a result of his relationship with the president of uh, Russia. And you say it was astonishing how badly the board treated him in your book. Mm -hmm. um, you, I mean, the book's published last month. So you did have the option to possibly rethink that in the light of what we now know about Mr. Uzmanov, but you have stood by that. Um, is it really astonishing that this man with a criminal record, who you chose to sell all your shares to, who was an ally of Putin, who made his money with which he could buy your shares through highly dubious business activities, do you still think that? Okay, I'll answer that in a couple of ways. Number one, and it's in the book, I gave Stan Kroenke first option to buy my shares. And he gave me a figure which I didn't feel was right. So I went to another buyer, uh, talking to other people, including Usmanov. Usmanov at the time, don't forget, we are now looking at 15 years ago. He was not sanctioned 15 years ago. Russia ran a very successful World Cup in 2018. What's happened since 2018 is another story. So I don't think you can blame me for selling to a higher bidder. Quite apart from anything else, it didn't give him control. It gave him 15% of the club. That is not control. So I find it particularly offensive as if I knew that he was going to be sanctioned 15 years later. I think that's unfair. I promise this is an easier question. <laughs> um, we've talked about the Super League and a few other things. I have a question about financial fair play, which didn't work or was deleted in the course. Um, and I think Arsenal and Arsene suffered from that. And maybe with Arsenal taking glasses, I think there's some issue in the sport today where you have super clubs in the resources like Man City or Paris Saint-Germain winning the league almost every year. And then others maybe who deserve their resources like Bayern Munich or Barcelona or Real Madrid winning the titles also every year. Do you think there is an issue with the competitiveness of football leagues in Europe? And if yes, do you have any ideas of how to fix that to keep the game more entertaining for fans in the future? Okay. Well, actually, Tim, who's very close to the Premier League, will tell you they do have a robust financial fair play rule. 
Um, and it is looked at very carefully. Every club, is their accounts are very carefully analysed. In fact, UEFA took an issue with Man City recently, and Man City actually won it on appeal, you may remember. They use a lot of lawyers. Yeah, you mentioned sure. Premier League meetings. <laughs> I understand they take a lawyer to Premier League meetings well, now. Well, there you are. So they are under the microscope. And it is, it is a sport. We want to see it as even we can. Arsene used to call it financial doping. This was before financial fair play. And this was really in the days, and I use the expression you may remember, when Roman Abramovich took over at Chelsea after the first few weeks and he was throwing his money around and I said, he'd pa he's parked his tanks on our lawn and they're firing 50 pound notes. And uh, eventually we got in the financial fair play rule. So the answer to the question is, Financial fair play is there. It has to work. If there are red traffic lights up, people have to respect them and stop them, stop and to respect them. And I think you'll find that it will have faith that the Premier League is wants to see a competitive league. They, they don't want to see a, their title being bought. Yeah. Uh, hi, Mr. Lee. Hi. Uh, given you're one of the uh, pioneers of the Premier League, what are your thoughts on what the Premier League needs to do in the next 5, 10, 15 years in order to stay ahead of La Liga yeah. and French football, given that both of those leagues are partnered with private equity in order to drive their commercial growth to catch up to them? That's an excellent question. And I think perhaps that may have been an ulterior motive in some of the clubs, not all, informing the Super League, because that would undoubtedly had slowed down, if not destroyed, the Premier League, which may have been in their agenda because we are envied, and I mean envied, by the rest of the world, because the Premier League has got the... I remember when Richard Scudamore, the CEO, left, I put in his book, that he was the train driver of the fastest train on the track. So the answer to your question is, how do you keep the fastest train on the track? Well, they're doing a very good job at the moment. Tim actually is very close. He goes into the Premier League at least once or twice a week, don't you, Tim? Not quite often now, but regularly. Keep an eye and you will agree, I think it is a good machine. I think the people there who are very efficient, I, I quite like the way it is being run. Um, and I think, uh, obviously, you've got the, some of the best players in the world now playing in the Premier League. You've got some of the best managers in the world managing the clubs. Um, so uh, I, I've got no reason to expect why that train should be slowed down, only unless there's outside forces trying to slow it down, and that is dangerous. If I, if I answer a little bit, some of what we do as the AST board on your behalf. And again, so much goes back to the work that David did, is we think as fans, we want to see a competitive Premier League. That also starts not only with financial fair play, but it's how the revenues are shared out. And of course, you know, the revenue distribution model, I think, was written down by you on a, yeah. on a napkin with Greg Dyke and a lot of triflitos to follow. But that model is really important, but it's beginning to be undermined by how much the European competitions pay the clubs and this danger of a sort of self-fulfilling mon monopoly of big six and that's why the AST went to the, the sports meeting in Frankfurt why we're talking to UEFA because we're saying to UEFA you must share out the revenues from the competitions to keep the domestic leagues viable even I didn't realise until this summer that 30% of Champions League revenue is paid out on a coefficient what that means is if Manchester United qualify for the Champions League, they would earn about £30 million more. But if West Ham qualified, quite a lot more than Arsenal because of our recent record, because 30% of the money is paid out on your 10-year history, which of course is all about trying to reinforce the elite that are always there. Uh, and, and that's being looked at now. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that has to change because 
It's not on merit. And everything in football or in sport generally has to be on merit. Yeah. Yeah. Next question. Hi. Yeah. Uh, hello, David. Um, you spoke understandably about your disappointment of your book not being sold uh, at Arsenal. Now, I've long been very anti the Cronky ownership regime, but my opposition to them has softened in the last year or two. They've begun spending quite a lot of money, and I think that is part of the reason for our improvement recently. Um, do you believe there has been a change in the Cronky ownership philosophy? And if so, why? Um, because I heard an interview with Josh Cronky quite recently when he said, um, or he gave the impression it was all down to him taking over 100% of the shares, which I find hard to accept because his father, um, since Danny Fitzman died, has owned about two-thirds of the shares on his own. So why you know, has there suddenly become a difference between 66% ownership and 100% ownership? What are your thoughts on that? Well, the first thing to say is um, uh, my old grandpappy used to say, any, da any damn fool can spend money, it's how you spend it. I mean, you have a look at what Manchester United did. They, nobody spent more money over the years than Manchester United, and they don't have a team. So I think it's just because they've spent money. The truth is, they've spent it wisely, or not all the time, but certainly of late. The, the, certain, a couple of their buyers have been really, really good. So I think that's been positive. So it's the people who are spending the money have made the difference there. I've got absolutely nothing against Stan Kroenke and Josh Kroenke. I want, I want them to succeed. I'd like them to succeed. Uh, I want to get pleasure out of the team winning. So, um, yeah, over the last year, it does seem good, you know, that, that, that there is a renaissance going on, which is, which is great. The fact that he had control of the board some time ago, how he chose and the people he employed, there were mistakes made early enough. Am I critical? Yes, I think I was. I think there's a lot of money wasted in the early time. There was a lot of players bought that I don't think were good enough for the club. They're not Arsenal players. And fortunately now, I think the tide has changed. Long that last. And if I just follow up your point, make a quick plug for the excellent work that Simon and Nigel do for us on financial analysis. And there's some really good recent work on where the money is coming from, which is largely refinancing of loans and debt. Ask Liz Truss how careful you have to be about um, <laughs> refinancing debt and what it might mean when I take a point it's oh, well. Actually, I saw that you, in your book you were meeting Liz Truss. I hope you weren't giving her economics advice. <laughs> well, she was Secretary of State for Justice for a year, which is probably more than she'll be Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but often, I think when we talk about all these cup of teas at the Wolseley, quite often it's Nigel. You know, you know, knows the finances better than anyone. So I just want to, it's on, all on our website if you want to understand where the money is coming from and how it's, how it's filtering through to Arsenal. Good evening, Mr. With your time at the Arsenal and the FA, which are you most proud of? Okay. Um, well, certainly when I look back, 
I have to say that highlights in my career, obviously I think that um, the team we assembled with, with George initially and obviously winning the league in 89, I mean that was a major milestone and then of course in 91 again and then bringing in Arsene which which was just pure chemistry, how that worked, that relationship, and enough has been, obviously, you can read it all in the book. Uh, I think also a milestone for me was being at the table when we formed the, the Premier League itself in 1992, and having to convince the four other clubs to come along with it, and that was right on the back after Hillsborough, and uh, there's a whole chapter about that in the book, if, you haven't, if those people haven't read it yet. And that was a real turning point there, Hillsborough, a disaster for me. And seeing two of the parents who tragically lost, lost their two daughters at Hillsborough. And I think when I look back at that occasion, even now I think it now it sends a chill down my spine, that really motivated me more than anything to change football. So I think, you know, starting the, the Premier League was, was a major, major milestone, changing English football generally. Because the truth is, it was going down the drain. It was in a bad state, even before Hillsborough. There was hooliganism and the attendances were dropping. Women were not going to the games. Mothers didn't want their children to go to the games. Well, people forget that. I mean, most of us are old enough to remember what happened in those days. And we, had the hooli we were blighted with hooliganism. Um, in fact, I saw a programme last night about what happened in, in Paris for the, for the Champions League final. And it shows you how things can go wrong even today at a football match. So uh, things I'm proud of undoubtedly is the success that uh, I've been, I have to say, I was fortunate enough to be part of with both George and then obviously with Arsene and the Premier League and the FA. Well, obviously we had some very good times at the FA. And uh, although we actually, we, I was not there, obviously, I was not involved in the FA in there. I was too young in 66. And, um, but, um, you know, I, I was delighted to have a seat at the table because I've always felt that Arsenal, wherever there is a top table, Arsenal should be there. Wherever there is, uh, whether it's the Premier League, whether it's the FA, whether it's UEFA or FIFA, I always like to think that Arsenal should be counted. They should be there. There's got to be somebody representing the club. Thank you, David. I just wanted to ask what you thought of um, the arguments that Gary Neville has been putting forward recently around the need for football regulation around the Premier League. We've talked about a lot of the sort of contentious issues here tonight and various issues. Do, 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 you, do you agree with Gary that there needs to be some kind of um, independent regulator that looks over these things or do you think the system we have is, is good enough to deal with the challenges it faces? Yeah, well that was really spawned after the Super League debacle, I think, that uh, and the fan-led review. Um, when you talk about fans being on the board, I was the fan on the board and when I when I bought into Arsenal Football Club in 1983. I was the fan, as you saw from my diary. I mean, I, I went to my first game when I was 10. So I've never met a board yet where the fans are not represented in the board. Every club, every club, particularly in England and probably in the world, there is always a fan on the board now. Otherwise, what do you do? You just pick a random fan and then how long do they last a year and then somebody else comes in? You know, you need stability. So the question is a contentious decision about having fans on the board, number one. About regulation, I always believe the governing body in England is the Football Association. I think they have to, be st they have to stand up to be counted. The regulation really starts and finishes with them. But it's difficult today because the Premier League is so powerful. 
I don't think you've probably got another view on that, do you? Well, I think that you need, you can, I no longer think you can have the 20 clubs in effect regulating themselves. So it's either the FA have to make a step change in the quality of what they do, or you have some regulation behind it. You might need some regulatory powers behind it. You referred to the legislative bond with Boris Johnson, that was the meeting the AST with it. That was partly because uh, Mark was asking for some legal clout almost, or competition law. Um, the other thing where we could perhaps carry on debating this over a dream, I do sort of agree with your point about boards, but I point to the problem now, when, when your board at Manchester United is all the Glazers, and when your board at Arsenal is 100% Stan Kroenke, yeah. it's not when David Dean and Danny Fisman were there, living in North London, meeting with us every week, always taking our phone calls, so maybe I think we have to update our view of what a board is. Well, uh, that's true. Where's the diversity? Is there only female representation on the board? Is there any person of colour on the board? Because the I'm board junior at Arsenal went to home and away game. Stan Crockett yeah. hasn't watched Arsenal for four years. Oh, I think. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid that's probably right in, in most clubs where they're overseas owned. A lot of the overseas owners do not come to the games, which is a great shame. They leave it to other people to run. That's their model, Tim. And, and that's not going to change. We have to live with it. And don't forget now, you've got virtually... 17 or so of the clubs who are owned by overseas people. You've got 70% of the clubs now got overseas managers. You've got 70% of the players are from overseas. So you have to accept that. And meanwhile, we've got the most successful league in the world in economic terms and playing terms. That's why, the, that's why we TV and sponsors all wanted back the Premier League. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for attending tonight. Um, Quick question, bringing it back to the success that you brought, brought back to Arsenal. Um, obviously, the hiring of Arsenal Wenger was obviously a masterstroke, but I think a lot of uh, the re-elevation of the Arsenal name sort of came before that with the signing of Dennis Bergkamp. Um, how important to you was getting that deal over the line, and how difficult a deal was that to do, considering the previous year's finish and the potential difficulties of the management at that time? Yes, that, that was true. Well, of course, that was in the era of Bruce Rioch. That was soon after George. So actually, Bruce, his two major signings were Dennis and David Platt. And both of them, I'm going to be unkind to Bruce, uh, he needed convincing on both of them. <laughs> I say no more than Thanks for coming along. I'm just reiterating really once once, but thanks for coming along tonight. And on a similar vein in terms of transfers, that chemistry that you've alluded to, that you touched on, uh, working with Arsenal, who, which signing are you kind of most proud of? Um, and uh, on, the, on the other side of that coin, which is the one that you feel got away? <laughs> yeah, um, the one that was undoubtedly the most difficult one to sign was Solcap. Uh, and, and that's that's well documented in the book. Uh, walking around my garden in Totteridge at two o'clock in the morning or something for days on end or nights on end. That was rather special, that experience. Uh, that took a lot of convincing. Uh, so that was probably the most difficult. But we've had a lot of others as well. I don't think any, virtually, apart from the easiest signing ever for me was Ian Wright because Ian used to come into my office and he would say, Mr. Dean, 
where do I sign? <laughs> I said, Ian, don't you want to read? No, I just want to play for the club. And he was wonderful. I said, well, what about your, you know, he said, I just want to play, play for the club. But you don't see that today because the agents, the lawyers and accountants, everybody jumps in and they, they will think they can do better. So uh, he was a really special and today, I mean, we're very close. He's still very special to me. Um, and the one that got the way. The one that got the way, well, okay, you'll all know this. This was a young lad. He was playing for the Portuguese under-19 team when he was only 16 or 17. And I went to Lisbon and um, I met him after the game playing for the, the Portuguese team. And it was on a curbside restaurant and we had a nice meal together and he had, was with his agent and with our scout. And we started talking terms and halfway through, he said, you'll have to forgive me, my bus is coming. And the bus was coming and then out of a carry bag, he took his shirt that he actually worn for the game, right, the Portuguese shirt and gave it to me. And obviously the player was Cristiano Ronaldo. I finished talking with the agent about uh, transfer fee and salary. The following day, Manchester United came on, came in and blew us out of the water. And I think he was always going to Manchester United and using us as a stalking horse, is the truth. So the one that got away was Cristiano, I'm afraid. Akko, can you find the last couple of questions? Hi, Lillian. Um, I wanted to go back to the timekeeping issue that you mentioned earlier and the sort of the pure timing, the two half hour and a half from 45 minutes. And to me as a fan, I'd be a little bit sceptical that that would be changing the DNA of the game quite a bit. I wonder if you had any sort of thoughts on why that wouldn't be the case or if that had something that came into your mind. And yeah. um, if the idea there would be to sort of completely eradicate the sort of tactical time wasting, or would you see that as part of the modern game? Yeah, would you say that now when there were when there were five substitutes in the game? Uh, when I thought my first league meeting in the football, the old football league before the Premier League in the 1980s, and when I proposed there was only one one substitute in those days, and I and I proposed two, and somebody at the back said you can't have that. And I said why not? He said well it's an extra bonus, an extra seat on the coach, it's an extra meal. So you know <laughs> to uh, to make progress is not easy, and people always you know we're accustomed to what we're used to. So change is not easy to influence and implement. And you've got to keep nagging it, like I'm doing with this campaign. Often I go on campaigns, I take five, this, this spray, by the way, which I've got here. Sorry, because I was at a school today. So this wonderful, I don't know if you can see this, 9.15 spray. There's a, can I tell this story? Yeah. Okay, so there's a lovely story bit behind this. So this was in 2010. I was given the great honour of being England's international president for our World Cup bid for 2018. We wanted to host the World Cup in 2018. And on going around the world, it took me to Argentina. Uh, I was in a big room, about 2,000 people, trying to convince them that England, they should vote for England for the World Cup in 2018. And after the event, uh, after uh, our presentation, a guy came, guy came up to me, he said, Mr. Dean, he said, you seem to know your way around football. Can I interest you in my product? I said, what do you do? He said, I'm in the paint business. I said, I said, paint? I said, what's that got to do with football? He said, I've invented an invisible paint, 9.15. I said, really, what's 9.15? He said, well, that's meters. He said, that corresponds with your 10 yards. Do you mind if I give a demo? Go on, go for it. It's not my, it's not my floor. So, <laughs> so I don't know whether you can hear me, 
So he said, look, he said, you know when there's a free kick, the referee will say, take the free kick there. He will ceremoniously march out 10 yards. He said, boys, stand there. He'll turn his back. And what do the boys do? They cheat. They, they move forward like a penguin. They go like this. So he said, well, look, I've got this spray. He said, I want the free kick taken there. He said, boys, I want you to stand behind the line there. And if you like, I'll come down here so you can see what it's like. <laughs> 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 Did we pay for cleaning at him? <laughs> now, on grass, on, on grass, this will disappear in two minutes because grass is 90% water. Tim, on this surface, should be about three months. <laughs> so, if you talk about change, it took about two years before we got this introduced, believe it or not. And did you do that at an IFAB meeting? Yeah, you've got to believe it, I did. I went back to England, I got samples, I went to the Premier League, the FA, I went to uh, UEFA and FIFA. But you know, change takes time and you've got to convince people along the way. So yes, I'm on this campaign about no more, no less, getting VR. Before that, we had goal line technology. Nobody wanted goal line technology to come in. Now, everybody accepts that it works, that the buzz goes straight to the referee's watch, and you can tell immediately if the ball's crossed the line. People say, oh, we don't need that. It only happens once or twice. Every year since it's been introduced, it's been in double figures, believe it or not. Yeah. Final question, I think, from Martha. Thank you. Um, talking of change, um, the women's game's finally really taken off. Yeah. Um, when do you see the women's game in five, ten years' time, and what do we have to do to invest in it? to get it to the levels that it should and could have been if it hadn't been banned for 50 years? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you're preaching, is it Martha? Martha? Martha. Martha, well, I love that question. Um, and Vic Akers, the ex-Arsenal kit man, deserves a lot of credit. I can't talk about women's football for Arsenal without mentioning him, because it was he who actually convinced me that we had to have a proper women's team. And in fact, when he started, I can remember we decided, that uh, the, the, the girls were actually playing at the time at the uh, Bronsbury, Bronsford Leisure Centre in Hoxton or something, that without, with about half a dozen people. So when I saw there were 80,000 people for England playing USA and there were 50,000 people at Arsenal Spurs women's game, how the game has changed, right? And when I first promoted it to the board, because I saw it was going on in the States, and I said, we should have a women's team. And one member of the board said, is this a publicity stunt? I said, no, this is serious. We've got to have a women's team. And to their credit, I remember distinctly, he said, well, what's the budget? I said, we need 200,000 pounds. We have to pay the girls' expenses. We have to get a coach. We have to get kit. And then I got Nike to subsidize some of the kit coming in for the, for the girls to play. And uh, we started, we were the real first, we were the driving force to get the women's game off the ground. And it took a long time to get other clubs in, into the fold. And now when you consider how it's gone, and I was at the Women's World Cup in France in 2019, and it was a fantastic event. When you see the women's Euros, like when, when England won the Women's Euros recently, it's come of age. And I can only see it getting better and better and better. In fact, I've proposed something to FIFA, which is totally radical. You know, I'm not frightened of sticking my neck out. There's still a lot of countries in the world that don't have a women's team. And my advice, uh, what I've suggested to FIFA, you really want to be radical, You've got to be dramatic with it. You've got to be strong. And that you simply say this, 
If you want a men's team to, to play in the Men's World Cup, you've got to have a women's team as well. So David, we're, we're drawing to an end now, and over this evening, I think that's why so many people have turned up, because so much in football has been you pioneering, or you going first, and that question summarises this. But what's next for David Dean? You've told us one or two of your campaigns, but what, what are we going to see you do over the next couple of years? Uh, well, certainly, uh, the, uh, as you know from today, being a Bishop's Court for the high school, so my talks in schools and prisons, I'm keeping those going, that keeps me going. Obviously watching Arsenal wherever I can, home games and pick and choose the away games uh, I go to. I want to see obviously Arsenal successful. Um, and I, I just hope, you know, I'm giving the good health to keep, keep going the way what I'm doing at the moment because I'm at a stage in my life where I'm really enjoying it. I've still got a really, very, really good relationship with Arsenal. I spoke to him yesterday and I will speak to him twice, three times a week. We'll be at the World Cup together, as you mentioned. Um, so, you know, that keep, keeps me going. Look, obviously, I've, I've got a nice family. I've got eight, eight grandchildren, so that keeps me busy. Well, I'm sure everybody here wants to thank David for giving us... That's all for today. Thank you for listening to the Arsenal Supporters Trust podcast. If you are interested in joining the trust, you can visit arsenaltrust.org and all the information is there. Speak next time. Up the Arsenal. Arsenal.